Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming back to How to Talk to Mommy and Papi about anything. Hola, new listeners. I'm Juleika Lantigua-Williams. Today, I'm talking to Michael, who struggles to understand his parents' political views. They're Jewish immigrants from the former USSR who had family members killed during the Holocaust. So Michael cannot understand how the history of persecution and genocide his own family endured doesn't make them more sympathetic and empathetic toward people seeking freedom, safety, and prosperity in the U.S. The situation has worsened as the presidential election draws near. Let's get into it. My name is Michael. I currently reside in San Francisco, California with uh, my wife and my four-year-old. In my family, we call my mom and dad Ma and Pa. Uh, These days, we just go by mom and dad. My family and I immigrated to the United States in 1989 from the former Soviet Union. And when I was a kid growing up uh, in that era, in that um, cultural, political climate, a lot of the the oppression from the government and anti-Semitic behavior, I was kind of blinded to it as a child and spent most of my time just kind of living in, in, in that childhood experience. And when we moved to the States, I realized that a lot of that stuff was here as well. We were sitting in front of our house at the time we were living in a, in a set of condos where the garages faced the street. And it wasn't uncommon for people to park directly in front of the garages to open them and, and get inside. And perhaps my father was a little too far into the middle of the street. And I remember specifically sitting in the, the passenger seat and a gentleman in, in a rather large truck going around us and getting angry at the fact that we were a little too far into the street and yelling uh, something to the effect of, get out of the street, you Jew, and a couple of expletives would follow. Um, As I remind my father of that story, he seems to not have any recollection of it and seemed very surprised that uh, that's something that I would actually remember. There's this um, kind of false idealism of the American dream that my parents have been experiencing for years and from the moment they moved here. And that's almost sort of blinded them to the realities of the injustice and the oppression that happens in this country as well. So in the past, when I've tried to talk to them about these issues, the responses were sort of uh, typical responses that you get from a lot of Trump supporters watching the same news events of Fox News. And that was really hard for me and my sister to understand. Um, coming from an environment and a, and, a, and a background where both of my my grandparents uh, experiencing uh, prejudice and anti-Semitism, uh, not only in the Soviet Union, but uh, my grandparents living through World War II and having my father's entire family, uh, except for my grandfather himself, pretty much perished in concentration camps. So my sister and I, that was really confusing. We couldn't understand how uh, they could separate one from, from the other. What happened where they were able to make that switch where the, the, the oppression that they were living in the old country and some of the anti-Semitism that they're still experiencing now in this country that they couldn't connect to other people, to other minorities, people that were living 
through a similar experience now as immigrants. When we first moved to the United States, we moved to Orange County, California, out of all places. My mom had a distant relative, I believe it was her second cousin, who was able to get us into the country. Uh, and we stayed with him for about a year until we were able to get out on our feet and we moved into our own place at that point. And I believe because they stayed in a community that didn't have a big Russian community to begin with, didn't have a very big uh, Jewish community. I remember my high school, there were maybe six Jewish kids. So I think be because of that, because of that demographic conservative Republican community, uh, they took on a, a slightly different identity because of their struggle to start all over again, uh, to retest, to recertify, to, to go to school again, to become a microbiologist and the mechanical engineers that they used to be in their own country. I think for them that represented that immigrant hustle. I think that's what the American dream represented to them. Financial security, independence, and the freedom to um, have the ability to build a life for themselves. So I think from their perspective, um, and to play devil's advocate, because they went through the effort in doing things the right way, they don't have the empathy for the for the situations where perhaps in some of these cases, it's impossible to go through that route. So I, I worry a lot about the influence that their ideals now have on my child, because for one, I, I have married a, uh, a third generation Chinese American. So my kid is growing up mixed race. I think that's made me see the world in a completely different light. You know, it's not just my uh, anti-Semitic or, or uh, stereotypical sort of experiences of my own culture that, that I, I can put out in the world and discuss. But now I'm, I'm living through my wife's experiences and, and her shoes. And now my kid is going to experience both. And so I think that that changes you tremendously. And I think that has a lot to do with how they see the world. So in light of everything that's happening now in the news uh, and the Black Lives Matter protests and coming up on, on this election in November, our conversations between, specifically between my parents and I, have gotten less and less direct about the, these topics. Um, we don't really have those conversations anymore uh, because we just, I don't know how to approach them anymore. Michael, man, I feel you. Talking about politics, especially in our political climate, can be so, so draining. But these conversations are even more challenging and even more important right now. How can we be heard while genuinely trying to understand our loved ones' perspectives? I'm ready for some help. So I called in an expert. My name is Sarah Delnito Budish. I am uh, assistant director and clinical instructor at the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program at Harvard Law School. Um, and I live right outside of Boston. So you heard Michael's story. What did you hear? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the level of perspective taking that Michael is really trying to engage in with his parents. You just get the sense that he feels so deeply that his, his family's story and the history of his family and what his parents have been through. And I hear him really grappling with trying to make sense of their conclusions, their views on these the sets of the sets of issues that he mentions. So that really jumped out at me. From your experience, from, you know, your practice, what are some of the key elements when one is trying to exercise this perspective taking type of engagement with someone who, who does not see things the way that you see them? 
um, I think that a term that's often thrown around in my field and, and that I, you know, I think is the right term sometimes uh, is conflict resolution. <laughs> um, I am not such a gigantic fan of that term because I think that the notion of a resolution to these really challenging, complex issues um, and sort of that challenge of taking someone else's perspective, I don't necessarily think that that's always the right frame. Um, it's sort of more helpful to think about conflict engagement. Like, how can I engage with this person? How can I sort of work through this conversation and grapple along with the person around these issues? So so thinking about in advance, like, what what is a good outcome? What would success look like? You know, what would I want to hear from the other person? That can help to sort of set your expectations about the conversation. Um, I think the second thing um, is on preparation is thinking for yourself in advance, you know, what could throw me off in the conversation? How could I react differently? What is one thing that I could try or one thing that I could do to handle that moment differently? So being related to someone absolutely impacts how I enter into arguments, what I hope to get out of them. And even when I t- when I try to be the most present and my best self, there is this almost cellular tugging that makes you just want to shake them sometimes. Um, So how do you keep people like me from shaking their relatives? (laughs) The first thing I would say is that the the shaking, that instinct to kind of shake the person, that shows that you care. And I think that's not insignificant. That's that's sort of a starting point. It, It shows that that instinct is really coming from a place of of love. It's sort of a question that we all sort of think about in these conversations. How does a loving relationship also hold conflict, also hold disagreement? I love the Um, way you frame that. You know, and I would say that those are not incompatible. In fact, um, you know, we all have different instincts around conflict. Some of us are more avoidant um, and, and really shy away from conflict. Other people, other families, in fact, might see conflict as normal. And sometimes the other thing I would say is that um, it's sometimes a matter of thinking about what it would take to be more transparent about that connection, bringing that struggle, that that sort of um, challenge into the conversation in what you actually say. So what might that sound like? I mean, if someone were to say, you know, I love talking about these issues with you, and I also find it really hard because I love you and I really care about these issues and I want to feel like we understand each other. Um, what do you think of, um, do you, you know, how do you feel about talking to me about these issues? I, for example, think about entering into these conversations with the notion not of conflict resolution, but of conflict evolution. Yes. Because sometimes I just need to get myself to even just engage with the person, yes. right? So that's like baby step number one, just to even be able to talk to the person mm-hmm. about this and graduating to the point of maybe persuasion, right? Yeah. Like ultimately that perspective taking is about persuasion. So what are some of the in-between things that I can graduate to in the process of evolving this conversation with this person? I think that um, conflict evolution is a, is a really perfect frame on what those sorts of modest goals might be and what those victories are. Like, what is there to celebrate at the end of a difficult conversation? (laughs) You know, like difficult conversations will always be difficult. It's not that we're thinking of ways to make them easy. They're just not going to be easy. So I think that um, one uh, way to adjust 
your frame on the conversations is thinking about, well, first, what are those places where we trip up? What are the pitfalls of these conversations? You know, I've had one or two or five or a hundred conversations with, you know, this family member before about this issue or maybe other issues. And here's what generally happens. <laughs> you know, being aware of that mm-hmm. pattern and taking stock of that as a first step of sort of an awareness thing. And then mm-hmm. um, for that, uh, really thinking about ways to almost like disrupt that pattern. And it could be really, really simple, right? So like, you know, when when my, you know, dad raises this one particular statistic that he always raises in these conversations, what I usually do is like throw out my statistic. Um, what if instead of pulling out that statistic, we ask a question? Um, and what might mm. that question be? Right. So and not the kind of question I, I I love questions that are like, don't you think questions, which really are not questions. Um, just, just because <laughs> just because there's a question mark at the end does not actually make it a question. So um, so what's a question that I can ask this person that actually really does come up from a place of curiosity, even if the conversation, you know, five minutes later ends up in a really frustrating place. Maybe there's a moment that was different. In Michael's case, there is a historical wound. And I don't know, after talking to him, if he or anyone in that situation or a similar situation could set that aside to be in an argument like this. So how does a person like Michael, who is very much in tune with this historical hurt, how does he use that or not to inform the way that he approaches these difficult conversations with his parents. There must have been a time when his parents told him these stories of their life. And I wonder if that's sort of a um, point of connection for them that he can now draw draw back to. So, you know, there, there's sort of hope. There's a lot of hope for re-cementing um, those bonds and coming back to a shared history um, I think at the same time, though, one of the things that that struck me was um, what happened in front of his garage and the way the different ways in which Michael and his father remember or not uh, remember that story. Um, it was just so powerful because Michael has carried that all these years. And it sounds like his father for his father, like it barely registered that I think is also a place to exper- uh, explore the the difference in perspectives. So what if Michael were to say something like, you know, this story was, or this this incident was so powerful for me. Um, and it sounds like it, it wasn't something that you've remembered, uh, or at least vividly for, for many years. I'm just really struck by that difference. What are your thoughts on that? How are we coming to different um, sort of, how are we working those in, into our narratives about ourselves maybe differently? Um, I think the other, the, the one other thing uh, that comes to mind is that, uh, you know, Michael's a father now. And that is um, something that he and his father at least have in common. They they both are fathers. Um, and I wonder just as, you know, there were so many ways in which Michael's parents' lives changed and perhaps their views changed with it. Michael's views are changing too um, because of his role as a father to a mixed race child. So, so I think that those are some potential openings for a different kind of conversation. All right, last question. What are some of your go-to do's and don'ts when you are dealing with family conflict management where there seem to be polarities? So I think one of them is 
to sort of pay attention to the pace of the conversation. So there's sort of a dynamic that can develop in these conversations that make them a little bit more like debates, right? There's like a, a point response, point response, <laughs> and it, it can speed up and kind of escalate and that can be fine or it can be sort of um, harder to really kind of take stock of what's happening. So I think silence is also um, a go-to strategy for me, um, even if it's just a pause. Like if I have something in my head that I want to say or I want to come out with, can I wait like three seconds before saying that thing? And maybe the person will share more and maybe uh, it'll help me to either share the thing that I want to share or just be more thoughtful about it. Um, Another thing is, again, coming back to the goals. A lot of times my goal in these conversations is to understand the other person's view and then also feel like I am heard as well. So one strategy for that is uh, to try and as much as possible, repeat back what I hear the other person saying. Like, it sounds like the way you feel when you when you read about this is X, Y, Z. Um, is that right? It gives the, oppor- the other person an opportunity to correct you. Often they'll elaborate. Um, maybe they'll say, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, and then I think the other piece of that, which can, which is important is the sharing your own views piece. Are you really sharing with the person the core of what you feel as well? If you're trying to get to the bottom of uh, where their views come from and how they've reached those conclusions, can you behave reciprocally? Can you give them the gift of sharing with them really your own thoughts and feelings that give rise to your conclusions? And that, I think, offers some hope at a deeper connection. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) All right. Let's recap what we learned from Sarah. Focus on engaging, not persuading. The first goal is to be understood and to understand others. Set modest goals. Taking the conversation in a different direction than last time, not becoming frustrated or angry, learning something new about the person, those are all worthwhile achievements on the road to persuasion. Be transparent. If a conversation is challenging for you, say so. The other person might be having a hard time too. Talking about the struggle can actually lead to mutual understanding. Use silence strategically. Try not responding for a few seconds when the person says something provocative. Doing so gives you time to think through a response and leaves room for them to say a little more. Repeat back what you heard. This gives the other person a chance to correct you, to elaborate, and to hear how their words are landing. Be generous. Open up and share vulnerably. Help others understand where you are coming from and model for them how they can show up in the conversation to help you. And remember, you can hold conflict lovingly. Disagreement and love are not mutually exclusive. How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything is an original production of Lantigua Williams & Co. Virginia Lora produced this episode. Kojin Tashiro mixed it. Micaela Rodriguez is our founding producer and social media editor. Cedric Wilson is our lead producer. On Twitter and Instagram, 
we're at Talk to Mommy Papi. And please remember to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Bye, everybody. Same place next week.